This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. It, it was like the Lord very clearly said to me, it's time. It's time for you to move past this time of learning you've been in. It's time to do something. And a lot of the people of color that I follow on social media say, we're tired. We're tired of educating you. White people, you need to get your people. <laughs> and I was like, hey, you know what? That's, that's something I can do. Hey folks, welcome to the Fighting Racism series, a project made in collaboration with the Footnotes podcast and the Religion News Service. I'm your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, author of How to Fight Racism. And this week, we're taking a look at white allyship, the problems found within it, the history of how we got here, and most importantly, a look at what's being done today to fight racism. First, Let's give a little bit of context about this topic of allyship. So in many ways, this is the hardest conversation we're going to have in the series, because in addition to the controversy that often accompanies talking about racism, we're adding two other delicate and complex topics, transracial adoption and white allyship in fighting racism. So let's talk first about adoption, specifically transracial adoption. What that means, as the name implies, is that the parents are of a different race or ethnicity than the children or the child they're adopting. There was a report that Mathematica did in conjunction with the Federal Department of Health and Human Services that found that about a third of all adoptions, 28%, in 2017 through 2019 were transracial. Most of those adoptions involved children of color adopted by parents of a different race. That was 90%. And then of those folks who were adopted transracially, black children alone comprised 21% and Hispanic children comprised 35% of transracial adoptions. Now, in a lot of cases, it's white parents adopting children of color. And in many instances, these parents took a more or less colorblind approach to addressing issues of race and racism with their children of color. That is to say, they wouldn't talk about race much at all, and to the extent that they did, it was something general, like all people are created equal, the different skin colors of people are, are beautiful, but it didn't really delve into specifics around identity or systemic racism or anything like that. And that was difficult for a lot of children of color. And as they have grown up, they have articulated how hard it was to be in the neighborhoods, the churches, the schools where they weren't, or at least they felt like they weren't equipped to navigate the racial landscape. Some of that began to change, or at least the conversation began to arise in a more public way around 2020. Of course, that's when we get the murder of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and the racial justice uprisings of 2020. Suddenly, for a lot of white people, race was very high on the radar, and they began to take a second look at what they were teaching their children of color about race and racism and everything that goes with it. So in the midst of this, a lot of white parents found that they were poorly equipped and ignorant about the realities of raising black children and other children of color to navigate questions of identity, self-worth, and even social stigmas related to race. According to Bethany Christian Services, which is the nation's largest evangelical adoption agency, quote, most black children adopted through Bethany are placed with white families, and the agency can do little to help those families preserve black children's cultural heritage. So it's incumbent upon white parents of children of color to put them in a position where they can learn to have a healthy sense of their own racial identity, as well as know some of the dangers and the pitfalls and some of the aspects that they're going to encounter around race in the broader world. Now, we'd call this episode or this topic white 
allies, white allyship. And I thought it was worthwhile to, to talk about that term ally as well as another term, accomplice. So when it comes to being an ally, that, that means being in solidarity with marginalized groups. It means you advocate for them. You have some awareness of what marginalized groups are going through, and you want to somehow be part of the solution. Now, I should say that um, you don't call yourself an ally. That is something that marginalized people call you based on your actions and your consistency and showing up for their needs and in their struggle. So allies are good. There's also another term in sort of activist and and justice circles called accomplice. Now, for a lot of us, accomplice means like accomplice in a crime. That's not what we mean in this case. According to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, being an accomplice refers to, quote, individuals asserting their own power by putting themselves on the line, operationalizing their privilege to challenge oppressive power structures, all at the risk of giving up the safety of their own privilege. The key differences between being an ally and being an accomplice are that accomplices accept personal risks by jeopardizing their comfort, endangering their livelihood, compromising their physical safety, and in some cases, gambling their freedom all in support of marginalized groups of people. So you can think of an ally in general as an advocate and an accomplice as someone who takes action, usually at direct personal risk, and especially to confront systemic forms of oppression and injustice. So what we're talking about in this episode is the need for white allyship in particular. We're talking about the need for white people to talk to other white people about racism. Listen, black people and people of color cannot do all of the work when it comes to fighting racism. I mean, on a very practical level, often we don't have the same access to social networks of white people that other white people do, meaning we're not at the dinner table, we're not at the parties, we're not in the fraternity or the sorority, we're not at the church where other white people are. That means it's going to be the responsibility of some white people who understand the urgency of fighting racism, to talk to other white people about their role in fighting racism. If more white people are going to realize their role in fighting racism, then white people have to take it upon themselves to educate and encourage their peers. And that's what we're talking about today. Now, all this may seem overwhelming, but let's try to reframe it. As a Christian, I believe that when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, God is working through us to move toward a just and equitable world. And so this week, we're going to talk with some folks who know all too well the challenges that lie ahead, as well as what it takes to make progress in this area. After the break, we'll be joined by Shelley and David Park to talk about their work in fighting racism through a curriculum they developed called Let's Talk Race a beginner's guide to conversations about race. It's a curriculum specifically geared to talking to other white people about racism. This is an informative interview that will challenge and inspire you, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. This podcast is made possible in part by Zonervan Reflective, the publishers of The Color of Compromise, How to Fight Racism, and How to Fight Racism, Young Readers Edition by Dr. Jamar Tisby. Zonervan Reflective focuses on faith and culture books that prepare readers to engage the public square with vision and verve, challenge the status quo, ask tough questions, and reflect the thought-provoking answers that call us to action. Zonervan Reflective is a division of HarperCollins Publishing. Visit zonervan.com slash zonervanreflective for all your book purchases. That's Zondervan.com slash Zondervan Reflective for all your book purchases. I am very pleased and excited to welcome a dynamic duo to the show this time. Shelly and David Park, welcome to Footnotes in the Fighting Racism series. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Um, We've done this for each and every show. It's just fun for me to know where y'all are calling in from. We are live in kind of the North Dallas area. 
in the great state of Texas. And you're in the same house right now. No. no. <laughs> Technology. Uh, we've got a little place outside of Dallas and I'm out here installing a sprinkler system. That's so hilarious. I've been, I've been getting dirty all day. I love it. I love it. I love that you take time for us today. And it's so funny. Uh, y'all are married and have been for a while, but calling in from separate places, it just so happens. And let's talk about that. Tell us about yourselves. Tell us about your family, all that good stuff. We uh, have been married 28 years. We have two boys. Our oldest is Samuel. He's 23, four, something like that. I don't know. He's off the payroll. That's all that matters. <laughs> I like that. Off the payroll. We've also been married 29 years. <laughs> okay. 29 years. That's Listen, what I meant. We don't want to start nothing on this. We got enough fighting to go on around racism. That's good. That's good. Yeah. And our youngest is 19. Uh, Jeremiah, he is adopted. He's African-American. Awesome. Well, congratulations on nearly three decades of marriage, two kids. This is phenomenal. And all of that ties into this story and this conversation, as we'll talk about. You mentioned that one of your kids is adopted and that he's African-American. And what intrigued me when y'all were filling out the the form for this uh, series is you said you didn't check the box. That's how I'm phrasing it. You didn't check the box to indicate a preference around the race of the child's you right. you wanted to adopt. So right. so first of all, lay out for us, because most of us haven't gone through an adoption process, lay out for us how that works and then why you chose not to indicate a preference. You know, Shelly really had a passion from her middle school years for adopting a child. So when we started dating, it was kind of get on board or get off the train for me and, All right. uh, about adopting. And so I was excited about that. And so we decided uh, we would have one child biologically and then we would adopt. And And so Samuel came along. And then four years later, we started the adoption process. And going into the process, you know, they there's a lot of forms you fill out. And one of them is to check whether you prefer race. But to be honest, we knew that when we didn't check prefer race, that it increased the odds that we would be matched with a child of color mm. and and probably uh, more, more specifically an, an African-American child. We were just <laughs> looking for our kid and he was really in Shelly's heart. We, mm. we tell our, uh, both kids, one of you came from Shelly's seed and one of you came from the seed of Shelly's heart. Mm. And, um, that was from very early on. Yeah, it's a very tender way to put it. Shelly, what was it about adoption? I mean, how long had this been on your heart as something to do? But clearly before you even met your husband. Right. I, I don't really know. It's not. I mean, I have other family members who are adopted, but it wasn't like I had like some great connection to them or like I wanted just, you know, Ephesians 1, 5 grabbed me when God says we're all adopted. And this idea of of just participating in that that thing, that part of God that he created in us. Moses was adopted. It's all kinds of adoption. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, it just got me from a young age. And I, the Lord put that there is the only way I know how to explain it. You strike me as a woman of conviction who's going to find a way <laughs> to. Wow. You've known right. me a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's going to read. <laughs> I think that's going to play a big part in the rest of your story which yeah. which we'll explore here. I want to talk kind of before and after. You're raising two children, you've adopted transracially one child a black child. And you said that, you know, when you when you first got into it, when you were first parenting, you kind of thought you knew a little bit about what you were yeah. doing. Surely you knew that right. there would be learning, but you know, in general, it seemed like you were e equipped to handle what would come. So, so right. tell us about that mindset uh, when you first um, had your sons, and and what your mindset was in raising them in terms of racial identity. Well, it was something I had, you know, I studied this in college. I'd taken classes about racial reconciliation and the civil rights movement and all of that sort of thing. So it's always been kind of part of conversation for us. And when, you know, I grew up in the Philippines, my parents were missionaries oh. there. So I have very kind of a world, a different worldview than just kind of living in Texas my whole life. And so when we adopted Jeremiah, it was, how do we, how do we raise both our kids to have a worldview that is 
includes everybody. Right. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that's kind of how we went into it. And there's a little bit of, you know, I know all there is to know. I mean, right. We fixed this problem <laughs> back in the, in the sixties. Yeah. It I was a little bit of class. Yeah. I took yeah, it, yeah, yeah. yeah. What more do you need from me? Um, so there was a little bit of probably a little bit of cocky in that. And I'm going to raise my kids to appreciate all cultures and it'll all be perfect and great and sweet and happy. Now, I, I do think it's telling, you said you grew up in the Philippines and I found that particularly for white people, there are sort of three contexts that really lend themselves to being more open-minded, more able and willing to learn cross-culturally. One is your third culture raised in a different country, right? Uh, Two is you are a military brat and just go all over, right? And then three would be sports, and, you know, typically a sport that's predominantly black players or uh, Latino players like soccer or basketball or football, something like that. So that starts to make sense there. Yeah. And I'm wondering, this is just me being curious, was there a little bit of in those early years of looking at the sort of stereotypical white person and their understanding or lack of understanding around race and saying, well, I'm a little bit ahead of them. So we're good. <laughs> oh, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. I'm just, yeah. I'm just imagining, I don't know if that's yeah. your, your family or, or just where you are in Texas or whatever, but it could easily be where the bar or the standard is. Am I like this group of people? Um, am I a little bit ahead, the same behind? And so maybe that lends to this idea. Yeah. Well, and it always makes you a little bit more confident than you probably should be. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. And frustrated with other people. There you go. Uh, I mean, I think at times we kind of struggled with being self-righteous about it. We got humbled in that process. You did talk about sort of a turning point and the murder of Philando Castile which was all the way back in 2016, to me, it still feels like much more recent than that. Actually, it was, there was Alton Sterling was killed just three or four days before Philando Castile. So there was two of them really back to back. And Philando's daughter was in the back seat mm. and had to watch, man, I don't, I don't know how you see that story and not have to rethink your whole life. <laughs> mm. um, and so even, especially as a parent. And so I really was, um, I started reading more, um, and really kind of expanding my echo chamber who I follow on social media. Uh, David started having conversations with people specifically, um, men of color of how do I have this conversation with my child about when they have interactions with the police? What does that look? Do I have to do that? And what does that look like? Wow. You remember at that time, Jeremiah would have been 12 years old. Mm. So he was coming of an age where he was turning from a little kid into a young man. And we we had heard from some of our uh, African-American friends that there was this talk that we were supposed to have with him about the police and not just what happens when you get pulled over, but that you will be pulled over. And this is what you have to do. And I felt very unequipped. That was the moment where all of a sudden we were like, oh, wait, we don't know what we're doing. Mm. So I did the most awkward thing I knew how to do. And that was I called every black person I knew (laughs) and said, will you go to lunch with me? And I just asked them, uh, you know, how do I have this conversation? Have you had any experiences with the police? And I asked them all uh, what was what was your reaction when Barack Obama was elected? And it changed my my life. I probably had 15 conversations. Shelly at the same time was just consuming every book she could find. I'm an engineer, so I wasn't reading. <laughs> Very good. Wow. And, this is such, I, I don't want to come across a certain way, but, uh, and, and we just met, but I'm curious, politically and ecclesiastically speaking, where would you locate yourselves at, at this time or or for those first 12 years with, with Jeremiah? Were you going to an evangelical church? Were you died in the wool Republican? I mean, you know, you asked about Obama, so that just got me thinking. We we grew up in the Church of Christ, okay, uh, which is a evangelical adjacent church, but we 
kind of drifted into kind of the community church space and Christian church space. We moved around with my job. So we were in an evangelical-like space, ecclesiastically. And I'm imagining it, predominantly white, or it, was it more mixed? Yeah, very white. Not because we wanted to be, but maybe in another lane, we were very intentional about putting our kids in schools that were very multiracial. So when we moved with my job, first thing Shelly did was look at the demographics of the schools. And we bought a house in the school footprint that had a very uh, broad mix of races and ethnicities. So always a Title I school. So that's kind of where we were, church and school. Politically, I grew up in a a very Democrat house. Shelly grew up in a less Democrat house, but we kind of grew together like a lot of people do over the 30 years. Uh, And we don't really like to associate ourselves with one party or the other. For sure. But it's become a challenge <laughs> over the Absolutely. years. And I only ask because a lot of times that uh, political view for for a lot of white evangelicals is very tied to their religion yeah. and their views on race. So that's as much yeah. as you need to say around that. I'm just curious. And yeah. then did you have the talk? We did. You know, it, I'm no, I have no other way to do it than to be awkward. So but we had it with both kids. We decided instead of just singling out Jeremiah, we were going to have the conversation with both of them. We had it a couple of times over the years in different ways, and we keep reinforcing it with him in particular. Yes. So you might even talk about the conversations you've had with his friends. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, just when he has friends who are white, specifically if they're girls, I tend to say, you know, if you get pulled over, there's a good chance the police, the first question they're going to ask you is if you're okay. Yeah. And and so I just need you to know where that's coming from and how to respond and to stay with them. And so. that was a one of the wildest interactions I had with law enforcement was precisely that. It was when we were teenagers in high school. We had stopped, me and my best friend, at 7-Eleven, two black guys, and uh, our friend was with us, and she's white, a white girl, a young lady. And there was a police officer who drove up next to us, totally unrelated, but was sort of eyeing us as he went in, and then came back out, eyed us again, Mm -hmm. and didn't leave. Before he got to his car, he stopped himself came back, knocked on the window, rolled it down, asked us names, age, saw our friend who was sitting in the back seat because me and my best friend, we just got into shenanigans. She didn't want any part of that. So she's like, y'all sit in the front, be goofy. I'm just going to chill back here. Saw her back there. He leans in, says, ma'am, are you here against your will? Mm. And I'm flabbergasted. I'm shocked. I'm like, what? What? Where even does that question come from? And then it starts to sink in. Yeah. What? this police officer surmises or assumes. You also mentioned a Tatiana Jefferson, who is a young black woman. I believe she was 28. This is in 2019. She's Mm -hmm. in her house with her nephew. The door is open. Somebody calls the police to say, hey, it's late, you know, two, three in the morning. The door is wide open. Will you go check? The officer assumes something nefarious it should have just been a welfare check but assume something nefarious a tatiana jefferson hears something gets a handgun to protect herself the police officer sees her through a window shoots fires kills her and so you said that also had a profound effect on you shelly will you I, tell us how you responded there in 2016 i mentioned i started reading i started you know expanding my echo chamber you know really kind of paying attention to this and and i'm having these conversations with close friends right it was mostly just in our house where the conversations we're having. And then when that happened, and it's just right down the road, right? This is in Fort Worth, Texas, where we used to live. It, it was like the Lord very clearly said to me, it's time. Wow. It's time for you to move past that, this time of learning you've been in, and it's time to do something. Mm. A lot of the people of color that I follow on social media say, hey, we're tired We're tired of educating you. White people, you need to get your people. (laughs) And um, I was like, hey, you know what? That's that's something I can do because I've been there. I understand that 
you know, I don't, I don't want to talk about it because it's going to make it worse or I'm going to say something wrong or those. So I, I know how that feels. And so kind of coincidentally, at the similar time frame, my dad had been, uh, he had created a class that he was using at his church. Uh, they're a predominantly white church. We're doing Be the Bridge groups. And he created this four week class that he called Let's Get Ready to Talk About Race. And it was kind of a prep class for white people mm. before they would go into a Be the Bridge group. Um, and so I, I vividly remember we were at a, he and I were at a fundraising luncheon and he airdropped his keynote presentations from his phone to my phone. So that's how I was like, Hey, I can teach. He's already created all this stuff. I'll just teach what he that's did. Nice. And, um, all in the family, you can steal that's right. it for free. And exactly stealing it for free. So I brought it home. I started looking at it. I started writing kind of some notes and, and, um, I was like, I think I could do this. And I invited a few friends to come to my house. This was February of 2020. And we sat around my dining room table and I went through these four weeks of this content, um, where we talk about history of race. We talk about what privileges we talk about how we, as white people block conversations, right? How do we, those kind of fragile responses that we have and those kinds of things. And um, I was getting ready to teach the next class in March of that year. And then COVID, the great untethering, I heard it called. Okay. (laughs) So, wow. What timing? That's incredible timing. I mean, this is before the racial justice uprise, before George Floyd, before we know about Breonna Taylor and Maude Arbery. And you had already started this journey. Now, Shelly, if I can just stick with you for one more second, what is that invitation like to your white friends? (laughs) Like, I'm just imagining people are, I don't know, it could go a lot of different ways. Okay. So actually this is how it happened. I was in a mom's group and that fall, one, the lady who was leading it, we're just having, it's kind of a Bible study kind of group. And she said she wanted different people each week to share something they had learned about being a mom. And I was like, okay, so I sat on that for a couple of weeks. She'd asked me to do that. And I was like, there are lots of things I could share. And I decided, you know, it's all white, a couple of Indian women from India, but mostly white women. And um, I said, Okay, I'm I'm going to just jump out here and take this risk and say these are things I've learned as a woman, as a mom of a person of color. These are the things I've learned. And the response was wow, just this I didn't know that. This is all new, you know, just it was it was a very sweet, loving, ex- uh generous response to that. And um so that was the group I went to and said, "Okay, hey, I have this class." if you're interested in having more of this conversation. And so a few of them agreed to do that. So that's how that, that went down. Were, was there any fear, hesitation? Were you emboldened at that point? I'm, I'm thinking of the folks who haven't taken that step yet. Yes. I'm I like, was so scared. Okay. I was really scared that they were going to ask me something that I wouldn't know the answer to. Okay. Talk Ooh, about that. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't like that. I don't like, yeah, that was, or that somebody was going to get mad, mm-hmm. right? That they might get mad at me or, you know, kind of have one of those um, defensive mechanism responses that we tend to grab onto. So I was really nervous about that. They were so very gracious. And I think, and the Lord was very gracious of giving me several, that group. And then I was going to start another class in March. Obviously that didn't happen because of COVID. And I sat around for a couple of weeks waiting for COVID to end. That didn't work. And so then I thought, I wonder if we could do this on Zoom. So the group that was going to do March, again, just four moms. I said, hey, can we do this on Zoom? They said, yeah, we'll do it. And so we started on Zoom. And it was during that four-week period that George Floyd was murdered. My goodness. And so, I mean, I vividly remember having to tell them, hey, I don't know if you've seen the news, but this happened this morning. And um, wow. so, yeah, it was. It's such a great lesson in being proactive. Um, because the groups that I've seen that have had sort of the most robust conversations moved more swiftly to action, they were already on this course. They were already on this path when 2020 came. And even if it was just a few weeks or a couple of months before, that makes a big difference because all of the, I mean, you, you, you really committed yourselves starting in 2016, at least to reading and studying and learning and more. So you had been prepared for this. So it's just a word for listeners and viewers, right? Like you don't have to wait for a crisis. This is stuff that that you can be preparing the soil of your hearts and minds right now. 
because something will happen. Unfortunately, we know that. And the question is, how ready will you be or will you be playing catch up when you get there? Now, David, one thing I'm really interested in doesn't sh- surprise me that Shelly is aware of this, because I think women have an experience of living in a society that's not built around them. Um, mm. built around men, right? But a lot of times the men, we're a little bit slower on the uptake. And then for white men, especially, if we can just put it bluntly, the way society has been structured is it's, it's with you in mind, first and foremost, right? And so the level of adjustments you have to make in most environments is minimal compared to other people, if I can say that. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering, as as a white man, like, Yes, you adopted a black son, but what encouraged you, inspired you to move forward and now really be in a leadership role in this in your community? I think if I look back, the maybe the, mo- the most important thing that shaped my ability to think through this now in those times was my parents. Mm. My parents were very, it was conversations about race and justice and uh, social issues and and poverty and people on the margins was a very common conversation in my house growing up. And was that from religious convictions? Yes. Okay. Yeah, very much so. And my, my mom and dad were both uh, very convicted about the role of women in church and in society and, you know, very feminist in that way did not fit into the church environment we were mm. were in in some ways we we're in an unusual church in the church of christ so i grew up thinking that way i i grew up in an egalitarian household I, I was already formed that way when i came into the greater and greater understanding about the dynamics of race in america and i had a foundation to build on that i wouldn't have had if my parents had not raised me that way but I also married Shelly. <laughs> right. I mean, I've I've been getting drugged by Shelly for almost 30 years into, into every crazy thing that I I mean, she's she is fearless in her convictions. Yes. And it's easy to just I mean, I'm just running behind her and she's blocking. I mean, it is yeah, yeah. I mean, she wasn't gonna mess with you if you weren't on this page. Mm, no, <laughs> at least at some point. Yeah. Um, But it's such an important point that you bring up when you grow up with a mentality of of broad mindedness or at least of being aware that other people have different experiences and, and maybe even more difficult experiences because where they're socially and demographically located. Right. That makes such a big difference in adulthood. And, and I think so many folks, particularly white Christians, are playing catch up in that sense because they didn't necessarily grow up in an environment where parents or you know role models encourage that kind of thinking. Yeah. So it, it makes all the difference in the world. And to folks who are listening and, and viewing right now, the way you're pouring into the young people in your life will bear fruit perhaps decades later yeah. as they're more able to to think differently, to hear different perspectives and to do something about it. So let's yeah. talk about that. Do something about it. So this this program that you have is called, I love the title, Let's Talk Race, A Beginner's Guide to Conversations About Race. Now you've gone through this how many times? How does how does how, how does a meeting look? David started teaching, I started teaching obviously in 2020. And after George Floyd was murdered. Word of mouth, people just started sharing. And um, by the end of the year, over 300 people from all over the country had oh been through our class on Zoom. Without you, like, going I didn't advertise. People. Oh, my. no, because people, you know, at that time, white people cared. Like, <laughs> like, oh, just, my, race is still a problem. Oh, That's wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so we were just prepared to receive that and be able to um, share that with people. And so David started teaching pretty quickly with me. We were doing two, three, four classes a week. Um, we've extended it now to five weeks. It's an hour and a half each week, the classes um, with homework in between. Wow. Um, and so the the teaching content for each week is about 45 minutes. And so we get on, most of them have been in Zoom. We have gone back to doing in person if that's something that people want to do, but uh 
Zoom, I think, offers a little bit of a safety for some people in this conversation. And I think so in this space, I think it's worked really well. So we'll get on and we'll discuss the homework that you did that week. Um, and then we have about a 45 minute teaching block. And then we'll at the end, we'll discuss what you heard in the lesson. So it's an hour and a half. Have there ever been any sort of blow ups, like people just being really fragile, pushing <laughs> back aggressively or, or, or even humorously sometimes? Tell us a story. <laughs> yes. Well, I've had several by email when we uh, first started. Uh, you know, I know you're familiar with this is how I first learned about CRT was mm-hmm. somebody accused us and I was like, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Yep. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. News to me. Uh. Yeah. Um, so there were some emails. One uh, ended with, you know, I hope I see you in heaven kind of a thing. It wow. was, we're kind of, I'm kind of done with you. I was like, okay, see you there. Wow. Um, but the other, another one, uh, an older gentleman got really triggered um, one week. And right as I was trying to kind of close the class, he, he just kind of unleashed his um, trauma, <laughs> if I can say it that way, on and it went on for about twenty minutes of him just really kind of yelling at me, and I kept trying to let's let's I want to have this conversation with you. Let's close the class. So everyone else can go, and you and I can have this conversation. And and uh, so that was a lot of fun. The beauty of Zoom, though, is I'm here while he's doing this. I'm texting people, pray for me right now. <laughs> I'm being yelled at right now. But the beauty of that is. Uh, he does live in our area and we were able to meet with him in person. And the very first thing he did was apologize. Mm. And he heard what we were saying. You know, he just, he assumed we were teaching something that was not biblical. Um, it was pretty early on in the class. And so we were able to kind of talk him through some things that we say in the class, but sometimes when you're in that space, you can't really hear it, but he could hear it one-on-one and he finished the class with us. And, um, yeah, it was a really sweet story. So, and honestly, I think he had some, some trauma from his early childhood around race that he, he had experienced in the South, you know, where he lived and it was still very fresh and hurt a lot. What you all did was so important, particularly with this individual. And you're right. I think it sounds, I mean, I'm not a therapist or anything, but it, it certainly sounds like there's a history there that that went far beyond whatever was happening in that particular meeting, right? And, yeah. and it brought up these things. And you were able to honestly sort of absorb some of that initial anger and reaction, but then to be able to follow up, thank goodness he was in your community. And then you could you could have that personal interaction what 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 is so significant about that to me as a black person is that's a conversation i didn't have to have mm-hmm. which could have gone very differently considering my background and experience right because mm-hmm. would he have received it or someone like that have received it from a black person in the same way mm-hmm. would they have been more defensive more reactive whatever it might be so that was massive i'm wondering for both of you, what you see your role as with white people in terms of those who are resistant. Um, We talk a lot as black folks about the way I put it is um, I am going to take people at their word. If they think this stuff is CRT or woke or indoctrination, Godspeed. You know, there's other work that I have to do. If you ever change your mind, if you're ever curious, I'll leave the light on for you, but I'm not going to stop and wait and try to walk you through this. How do you see your role, your ministry, even in terms of white folks who aren't there yet and may even be hostile? What is your approach? I think you have to first kind of understand the class is because um, we we out front up front are saying this is white folks talking to white folks. So there's some self-selection that goes on mm. making the class. Yep. Right? So we're not the we the vast majority of people have light bulb experiences in the class and very, mm. very positive experiences. Mm. Even folks that come in a little bit hesitant, mostly what they're hesitant about is that they are afraid that they're going to be told that it's bad to be white Hmm. and they should feel guilty and ashamed of being white. And so we've tried to create a very safe environment for white folks to talk to white folks and have lots of discussion time. We have lots of just very open conversation time where people can ask questions. 
And if we don't know the answer, we say we don't know the answer, but we also have what's called an after party. We kind of <laughs> close off at an hour and a half and we say, anybody wants to stay on, we'll stay on as long as you want. Wow. And uh, that's where we have the deepest, hardest conversations. And through the five weeks, there's a lot of unpacking that goes on. And so that's part of it. I think the other is that we're trying to work with churches in okay. particular to form ministries in their church to do the awareness and re- relationship work that's necessary over time for people to to grow in understanding of this and to to begin to to change and um and that takes time and it takes conversations and it takes being uh stubborn and patient and loving and having hard conversations with people so you're cool with the person who comes in with their guard up. I mean, like you're saying, there's some self-selection already. So there's some curiosity, right? But they also don't know quite what they're getting into in terms of the content and what might come up. But you see that as really part of your ministry and calling right now is to serve folks in that spot. I like to say that there is a, a journey, a race, a bridge, whatever metaphor you want to use that people need to to. Uh, you know, Dr. King says, getting off the sidelines, whatever metaphor you want to use. And we're not really helping you across that bridge or down that journey. We're saying, hey, you need to go take that journey. Okay. You need to go cross that bridge. And we're going to give you some tools to help you do that and do it well. Shelly, what are some of the common misunderstandings, um, confusions that you have to untangle, having gone through this many, many times with literally hundreds of different people, what are the things that are that continually come up from, from folks in your group? Well, I think like David said, I think for a lot of people, it's, I'm, I'm afraid you're going to make me feel guilty. Right. And so we work really hard to say, God created you just the way you are. And you are in the same image of God that everyone else is. Right. Um, and so there's no guilt in that. But I think a lot of people, when we talk about the history of race, that's very impactful. They're like, I had no idea that you could trace it back to one guy as the world's first racist, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and so talking about Prince Henry's biographer, and they've never heard that story because we don't talk about that. And I, um, then we also talk a lot about systems. We talk about systems a lot. And redlining and the GI bill. I think the GI bill really connects with people because for a lot of people, their parents or grandparents benefited from the GI bill and they had no idea how that has moved forward and and changed their life because of that. And so that's one of the ones that kind of real light bulb moments people have. That's That's really helpful. Yes. There's always that tension between understanding race racism mainly as interpersonal and attitudinal how i yep. treat black people do i say the n word right. any of my best friends are black right versus the systems the policies the structures around it right. now um i find in these conversations and the program you're talking about is specifically called let's talk about race that when the light bulb does come on people want to move pretty quickly from conversation to action so how do you handle that sort of progression in people's thinking where do you point them towards are you yourselves planning anything just curious around that you're exactly right i mean by week 2 they're like okay are you going to tell me what to do and week 2 yes all uh, right expert so ready to go repeat you know get to week 5 and and week 5 we spend most of the time talking about next steps. And we talk about next steps that are kind of individual racism and and individual in nature and those that are systemic in nature. And uh, we say it's a both and it's not a, a, an either or. Um, And, but we especially want people to go and talk about race. We, We want white folks. We want to unlock and unfreeze conversations about race. With folks, and so we we encourage them that you know to to gently and carefully with your uh, friends of color to to say, hey, I, I've been in this class, I'm learning a lot. Um, I would love to hear your perspective and and your life experience as a person of color, and we and to have that conversation and to sit and listen and to believe them. Mm. Not talk a lot, not 
um, not try to relate your own experiences to any of it, but just listen to their experience. And, uh, you know, that if that's the outcome of the class, we think we've we've accomplished a lot in five weeks. The other big outcome is we want them we want them to be uh, engaged enough that they really start reading, studying, watching. And we've curated a lot of content for them to keep keep learning after the class. We also are we partner with an organization called Threaded which is a, a nonprofit that does this work. It's led by um, a man of color, Marcus Lloyd, and they're doing great work with churches and they have a great curriculum called The Journey that is kind of intended to be multi a multiracial, multi-ethnic kind of uh, response. I mean, a, a group. And so we encourage people to get involved in something that continues your learning in a space that is multiracial, multi-ethnic. Have y'all received any pushback or criticism from black people or people of color who may have heard about your work? No, which uh, part of me is like, are y'all being honest with me? Is <laughs> We've had lots of people of color take this class. We've even, we've had lots of friends. Uh, we're like, Hey, can you come listen? See what, you know, and they're all, the response is generally finally white people are talking about this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. We had, we had a few of them that said afterwards, they're like, you tell white people this? <laughs> <laughs> you can actually get away with it. Yeah. Yep. For me, that's always, unfortunately, the the questions that I have to sort of, you got to fill folks out, right? Because there are a lot of very well-meaning, well-intentioned white people who might be uninformed um, or misguided in their efforts to talk about race. And you kind of got to get a feel for where folks are coming from. But once you do, right, like once you get a sense, okay, they're, not only are their hearts in the right place, but they're giving helpful information. And then my response as, as a Black person to your work is, whew, thank goodness somebody's doing it and I don't have to do it talking mm-hmm. to white folks. Because quite honestly, I'm not able to have those conversations mm-hmm as much as I was before. And that's another question I have. Have you seen a shift from 2020 to 2023, given all that's happened from January 6th to, uh, you know, the election denials to the CRT stuff? Has it become harder to have these conversations? Uh, Has interest tapered off? Anything, any change over time since you began? Interest did taper off in 21. It was a pretty slow year for us, but it feels like it's picking up a little bit. Yeah. We've also, you know, I quit my job. We're doing this, you know, spend a lot more time at it and we're doing more promotions. So that may be part of it as well. But there does seem to be in the last six months or so more of a willingness to to have the conversation. Okay. People to join it than there was in 2020 one and two, when it really, it slowed down a lot. When the CRT thing came out, it put a big freeze uh, in people. People became very suspicious. Yep. I felt that too. My book, um, my second book, How to Fight Racism came out January 5th, 2021, uh, the, the, the day before the insurrection. And even by then, you know, it had been only a few months since the the protests of 2020 interest had started to taper off conversations had become more contentious because for people on the right there was more at stake in not appearing woke or leftist yeah. or progressive or whatever it might be as we round out here just wondering what words of wisdom encouragement perspective do you have for other white people who haven't yet taken as many steps as you have. They're, they're they're saying, okay, I need to talk to other white people about this, but maybe they're hesitant. Maybe they're afraid. How would you encourage them in this moment? Come take our class. <laughs> I like that answer. Was that shameless enough? You got to do it. You've done the work. Um, while we're on that, how can folks get involved? We have a website, ltrministries.com, and you can register for classes there. We have classes starting this summer um, on Zoom. Next week, yeah. we're starting a class that we're kind of focusing on educators and inviting oh, a group of educators to be a part. And then in July, we'll have a kind of general Let's Talk Race class, and then we'll do some more in the fall. But I'd also say, you know, there's a movie at uh, that Matt Damon was in where they bought a, bought a zoo 
But mm-hmm. you remember the name of it? And he has this phrase in there, 20 seconds of courage, uh, that you can do anything if you just have 20 seconds of courage. Shelly's middle name is 20 seconds of courage. Wow. And she just, there, you know, sometimes you just have to jump. And when you know it's right, this is the work of, of the kingdom and the church being reconciled, the tearing down of the, the dividing walls of hostility and the, and one new humanity is, is God's the center of God's heart. And so, you know, if you can't find a reason to do it, you're not looking, you just need 20 seconds of courage. I really, really like that. That's going to stick with me. Who knew a Matt Damon line right? (laughs) minister. Well, thank y'all so much for sharing your story, for being honest and and vulnerable, coming at it uh, as white people to a very delicate conversation. And I would encourage folks to uh, look up your website, join the group if you if you feel that's appropriate, and take that twenty seconds of courage to take the next step and make a difference where you are, and it will help folks like me. Not to have to fight so many battles as we're fighting racism. Shelly, David, really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Fighting racism requires action. Today, we've heard what one couple is doing to guide other white people into anti-racist action. And their story invites the question, what will you do to fight racism today? Think on it. And more importantly, act on it. Let me leave you with this. If the veterans of movements past fought for a brighter tomorrow, then we inherit their struggle. And we now, because of them, have the tools to fight for a more just and equitable world right now. Let's be faithful stewards of the hard-earned progress secured by those who came before us. We'll be back next time. Fighting Racism is a mini-series powered by Footnotes with Jamar Tisby and is made in collaboration with the Religion News Service. Our producer for the show is Bo York, with special thanks to Catherine Post, Paul O'Donnell, Roxanne Stone, and Adele Banks. Our guests this week were Shelley and David Park. You can learn more about their work and how you can support them in the show notes for this episode. I've been your host, Dr. Jamar Tisby, and we'll see you next time on Fighting Racism. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.